Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today we are going to talk about the economy of August month Visionize magazine. This month it has 15 topics and I will divide it into four sections basically covering four topics in one section. So our first topic is direct tax code. Recently the draft legislation of the new direct tax code was submitted by the task force headed by Akhilesh Ranjan to the government of India. More on the news, direct tax code is an attempt by the government of India to simplify the direct tax laws in India. It will revise, consolidate and simplify the structure of direct tax laws in India into a single legislation. When implemented it will replace income tax act 1961 and other direct tax legislations like the wealth tax act of 1957 the task force was constituted by the government to frame draft legislation for this proposed direct tax code in november 2017 and review the existing income tax act now what is direct tax code what is direct tax these are the taxes which are paid directly to the government by the taxpayer under this the incidence and impact of taxation falls on the same entity which cannot be transferred to another person it is a progressive tax because the proportion of the tax liability rises as an individual or entity's income increases example income tax corporate tax dividend distribution tax capital gains tax security transaction tax the system of direct taxation is governed by the cbdt central board of direct taxes under the department of revenue in the ministry of finance now what have been the trends in the direct tax collection so there have been a growth of more than 80% in the number of returns filed in the last four financial years and direct tax to gdp ratio has increased to 5.9% the highest it has been in the last 5 sorry 10 years further the number of persons filling income tax returns also increased by about 65% during the period of 14 to 18 moreover direct tax to gdp ratio to increased to 5.9% in the financial year 17 18 which is highest in the last 10 years This shows a sign of improvement of tax buoyancy in the economy. Now what is the need for this direct tax code? So income tax act we have 1961 with over 700 sections was drafted as per the nature of Indian economy in 1960s and the capacity to mobilize resources from the taxpayer directly. However in these 58 years there have been following developments. Change in the Indian economy towards liberalization privatization then global economy was uh, changed towards more integration and globalization then changes in the model of doing business such as e-commerce then changes in the technology which can be leveraged towards better tax administration also the it act has been amended various times which has made it complex and increased tax litigations now what are the key provisions of this direct tax code first one is rejig of tax bracket second is removal of surcharges and cess fourth one is negotiated settlements basically a new concept of settling dispute through mediation between the taxpayer and the collegium of officers 
Here the assessee will not only have to pay the tax and interest and no penalty in case of negotiated settlement. Then assessment system. Creation of an assessment unit to replace an assessing officer and a separate litigation unit. It has favored the jurisdiction-free anonymous assessment by domain experts with the involvement of senior officials. Next is incentives for startups. So all these were the needs of the basically these were the key provisions of the direct tax code. Now what are the benefit of this direct tax code? Simplification of the process for taxpayers. Basically surcharge and says com complicate the tax calculation especially for tax deduction purposes and also add to unnecessary dispute. So this will simplify process of taxpayers. Then expansion of tax base. So despite being a country of 1.3 billion people, there are only 74 million effective taxpayers in India as per the last count. So as large number of people will be covered in the lowest tax slip, which will, which will promote voluntary tax compliance. The third benefit is address contemporary needs such as greater mobility of capital, capital account convertibility, tax competition among other countries. Further, it will be capable of dealing with new business models in the digital economy. Now, next benefit is bringing in objectivity in the tax architecture. As the draft has proposed concrete principles of taxation, which would give the future tax proposals by, which would guide the future tax proposals by all government. Next is reduction in malpractices. Through faceless assessment, whereby there will be no requirement of physical presence of taxpayer or the identity of the accessor, there is an emphasis on reducing litigation and making the interface of the department with taxpayers anonymous to eliminate harassment and corruption. Boost to savings and investment. As the corporate tax regime will be rationalized, which will create predictability in the minds of individual and corporate players. Basically, the direct tax code also pays specific attention to startups under stressed position due to taxation. As we all know, our startups struggle mainly because of this taxation and it is a great initiative to boost the savings and investment by them. The capital gains tax regime, minimum alternate tax and dividend distribution tax have already been reviewed by the task force. Now, what is this significant? What is the significance of the direct tax collection? This direct tax collection increases, or basically, high tax buoyancy is there. Higher tax buoyancy would mean that the government would borrow less, keeping interest rate lower, while giving room for corporates also to borrow at lower rates, thus reducing crowding out effect in the economy. Second is fiscal health. High rate of direct tax collection increases the spending capacity of the government on social sectors such as education, health, without compromising the fiscal prudence. Simple zivate. The more the money will come, the more it will be spended on the welfare of the people only. Then next significance is maintaining inflationary trends. High rate of direct tax collection also helps in maintaining the optimum interest rate in the economy, which in turn assists in maintaining the inflationary pressure. Next is lower indirect tax. Higher direct tax collection could lower the tax burden on the poor by creating fiscal space for the reduction in GST rate, which is 
you know we all need because you know as of now there are four gst rates which are very complicated and sometimes it may take a large amount of money from the taxpayer's uh, pocket but when the direct tax code or when the direct tax will be high obviously the indirect taxes like gst will be reduced now what is the way forward although previous efforts to develop an alternate mechanism for settlement of direct tax include mediation have not had too much success but it can be ensured through dtc in the following way how there is a need for robust database of jurisprudence and proper training to the taxpayers sorry tax officers chartered accountants and other professionals empaneled to ensure a proper effective and impartial approach to settling litigation periodically release internal manuals which contain the revenue department's interpretation of the provisions giving in mind rulings now next is uh, further there should be an institutional mechanism with uh, participation of all stakeholders to periodically oversee the changing requirement and amend the dtc as required now the next topic is jalan committee report recently the uh, reserve bank of india decided to transfer a surplus of rupees 1 lakh crore to the government of india exchequer now what is the background behind this the one of the many issues of friction between the government and central bank is transfer of higher surplus from rbi to government the rbi transfer surplus that is the excess of the income over expenditure to the government in accordance with section 47 since we released in 47 so section 47 this is how you can remember of the rbi act of 1934 earlier rbi used to keep a major chunk of this surplus for its contingency and asset development however after 2013 maligam committee recommendation its transfer of surplus has increased last year rbi formed a committee under the chairmanship of bimal jalan to review the provision under economic capital framework recently based on the recommendations of the government uh, obviously committee the rbi central board had decided to increase its net transfer to the government the recent transfer includes 1.23 lakh crore of uh, surplus for 2018 and 19 and 52000 crore of excess provisions identified under the revised economic capital framework adopted by rbi board the transferred amount is over 3 times the 5 year average of 53000 crore the higher surplus is due to long term forex swap and open market operations conducted by the central bank over the last fiscal now how does the rbi accumulate these resources itna paisa kahan se aata hai re baba so apart from keeping inflation in check the rbi also performs following activities first management of the borrowings of government of india jo government paisa leti hai unko rbi manage karke rakhta hai regulation of bank and non banking finance companies then management of the currency and payment system while carrying out these functions or operations it makes profit abhi rbi economic body hai market mein paise ka aana jana isi ke hath mein hai to profit to bana ke rakhega it also earns through its foreign currency assets which is bond and treasury bills of other central bank and deposit with other central banks its holdings of local rupee denominated government bonds or securities and while lending to banks for very short tenure such as overnight it claims a management commission 
on handling the borrowings of state government and the central government. Its expenditure is majorly on the printing of currency notes and on staff salaries. So, these are the sources of resources for RBI. Now, what are the recommendations of this Jalan committee? First is guiding principle. The committee has given the recommendations on the principle that the alignment of the objectives of the government and the RBI is important. Second, it defines economic capital as combination of realized equity and revaluation reserves Central Board has decided to keep this entire capital at the level of 24.5 to 20%. Realized equity. It is a form of contingency fund for meeting all risk losses primarily built up from the retained earnings. The committee states that the entire income above the realized equity should be transferred. It currently stands at 6.8% and the committee recommends it to be in the range of 6.5 to 5.5% of the balance sheet. Revaluation Reserves It comprises of the periodic market-to-market -market unrealized notional losses in the values of foreign currencies and gold, foreign securities and rupee securities and the contingency fund. Surplus Distribution Policy Which targets the level of realized equity to be maintained by the RBI within the overall level of the economic capital. Arguments in favor. More judicious use of resources. Abhi ye jo transfer of fund na, iska kya, kya fayda hai? It will be leading to more judicious use of resources. Haan, bilkul, you know, the government is the best uh, body to, you know, you judiciously use these resources. RBI to aise hai, usko to kuch hi nahi hai. As RBI's reserves are far in excess of the prudential requirements, these funds be utilized to provide capital to government-owned bank. It can help offset the expected shortfall in various tax revenues in 2019-20 and aid the government in meeting its fiscal deficit target. It will also improve the yield of the government securities due to improved financing capability. It will help government deal with the economic slowdown. Which can be addressed using these resources to provide fiscal stimulus to a sagging economy, reduce off balance sheet borrowings, or meet the expected shortfall in revenue collections. Many government decide on this issue in Japan. The government decides the quantum of surplus which the central bank transfers to the government. Strong position of the Reserve Bank, which had an overall fifth rank in 2018 at uh, 26% of its balance sheet with respect to central banking economic capital. Now, what are the arguments against this transfer of funds? The buffer against externalities, such as a potential threat from the financial shock and the need to ensure financial stability and provide confidence to the markets. It is crucial towards autonomy of the RBI, which can be ensured only maintaining a large reserve so that it does not depend on the government in times of financial stress. This is what I was talking about. That the RBI, it needs to have its own autonomy. In the backdrop of the resignation of the last RBI governor, this move has been criticized by some experts as having to lead to the erosion of the autonomy of RBI. It can create inflationary pressures in the economy with an immediate increased government spending if it is not done in a proper manner. 
Now, what is the way forward? In the future, it should be endeavor of both government and our reserve bank to ensure both risk management and need of the economy are balanced. Now, third topic is bank merger. Recently, government announced to merge 10 state-owned banks to create four large banks. Merge 10 to make four. More in news because OBC, United Bank of India, will be merged with Punjab National Bank. Canada with Syndicate, Andhra and Corporation Bank with Union Bank of India. So basically, I had an account in OBC, Union Bank and uh, PNB mein to nahi tha, aisa hi tha. and Allahabad will be merged with Indian Bank. This merger would bring number of public scheduled bank in India from 27 to 12. Now, what are the benefits of the bank merger? It will lead to making of global banks. Big Indian banks can slowly and gradually transform themselves into global banks. Then, risk management and large loans. Merger will result in non-performing, better non-performing asset and risk management. Also, banks will not be reluctant to approve big loan to averse the risk. Then, customer service. Larger size of the bank will help the merged banks to offer more product and services and help in integrated growth of the banking sector. Human resource. The wide disparity between the staff of various banks in their service conditions and monetary benefits will narrow down. Improve regulation. From the regulatory perspective, monitoring and control of a smaller number of banks will be easier after mergers. Then it will reduce cost. These banks are owned by the government and each bank are competing with the other for the same pie, which is terms of deposits or loans, in the same narrow geographies leading to each one incurring cost. The volume of the interbank transaction will come down, resulting in saving of considerable time in the clearing and reconciliation of the accounts. Now, what are the challenges in the bank merger? Overlook regional requirement. Many banks focus on regional banking requirements. With the merger, the very purpose of the establishing the bank will to cater to the regional needs will be lost. Now, too big to fail. When a big bank books huge, when a big bank books huge loss or crumbles, there will be a big jolt in the entire banking industry. Its repercussions will be felt everywhere. Job loss. Mergers will result in immediate job losses on account of large number of people taking voluntary retirement scheme on one side and slowdown or stoppage of further recruitment on the other. Cultural clash. Mergers will result in clash of different organizational cultures. Conflict will arise in the area of system and processes too. Disruption in services. It may lead to deterioration of services and disruption in the near term as the merger process gets underway. This will lead to a further slowdown in lending for a while. Steps to be taken. Standard process. There is no standard procedure to choose the banks for merger. The government should design a standard process for merger. Then consultation with stakeholders. All the stakeholders must be taken into confidence before the merger exercise is started. Reduce the NPA first. The government should clean the bank book first and then consolidate the big bank with the strong bank. Then governance reforms along with bank consolidation, the government should take immediate measures to improve the governance and get desired results. So that was it about, about uh, bank merger. Next is development bank. 
So the fourth topic and the last topic for this section of the podcast is Development Bank. Finance Minister recently announced setting up of Development Bank as a slew of measures to boost the economy and financial market sentiment. Now, what is a Development Bank? A Development Banks are the financial institution that provide long-term credit for capital-intensive investments for a long period. Now, these banks are also extended these banks also extended useful services such as in-house technical expertise, underwriting new capital issuance and creating confidence in other lenders. They performed a counter-cyclical role to ensure investment flows even during economic downturns and actively supported regional integration and internationalization of domestic companies. Source of fund To lend for long-term, development banks require correspondingly long-term sources of finance, usually obtained by issuing long-dated securities in capital markets subscribed by long-term savings institutions such as pension and life insurance funds and post office deposits. Considering the social benefit of such investment and uncertainties associated with them, development banks are often supported by the government or international institution. Such support can be in the form of tax incentives, administrative mandates for private sector banks and financial institutions to invest in securities issued by the development bank. Now, Development Bank in India In India, a development banking was started immediately after independence. Industrial Finance Corporation of India, IFCI, is the first development bank in India. It started in 1948 to provide finance to medium and large-scale industries in India. After 1991, Following the Narsimhan Committee reports on financial sector reforms, development finance institutions were disbanded and got converted to commercial banks. Now, what is the difference between a commercial bank and development bank? Commercial bank, it provides short-term loans, it accepts deposit from public, it directs the finance to customers. While development bank, they provide long-term loan, accept deposit from commercial bank, central and state government, they provide refinancing facilities to whom? commercial banks. Now, what is the reason behind this recent demand for development bank? Recent economic slowdown, for instance, to 2008 may global financial crisis ayana, development financial institutions played an important counter-cyclical role in many jurisdictions by scaling up their lending operations when private financial institutions experienced temporary difficulties in granting credit. The problem in long-term lending Project finance has been a domain of what? DFI, direct finance institutions, since long. Project finance to karenge or kya karenge? So, DFI transforming to a bank had a negative impact on lending long term funds as banks have access to short term resources and not to the long term resources. Now, loss of core competence. When a bank offers a variety of product under an umbrella brand, there is a possibility that the multi-bank product, multi-product bank would lose sight of their core competence and would face a greater risk by participating in untested activities. Conclusion, reliable and well-administered development finance institutions with a well-defined mandate and sound governance framework is the important vehicle to accelerate economic and social development. So this was it about this section of the podcast which has four topics. Now you kindly just close your eyes, pause the podcast for a second, for a few seconds and revise, revise all the topics and uh, see if you are comfortable remembering all the four topics or not. We'll meet in the next section of the podcast. Thank you for listening.
Welcome to the second part. Our next topic is fifth topic. So in this, I will cover five, six, seven, eight. The fifth topic is slowdown in economy. So it was in news recently because uh, economic data indicates that there is slowdown in Indian economy. And in order to slow, uh, see the slowdown, we will have to look onto GDP number, investment, savings, wages, export and inflation in the economy. So the current situation in India is that the GDP recently released government data showed that GDP grew at 5% in the first quarter. And this is marking the slowest growth since the fourth quarter of financial year 13. The investment rate as measured by gross fixed capital formation as a part of GDP is showing declining trend. The gross fixed capital formation as per GDP has declined from 34% to 28% in 2018. In the savings, the saving declined from 32% to 29% in 2018. The decline in savings rate is because the economy is experiencing a declining wage growth, both rural and urban wages. And uh, seeing the wages, rural wage has uh, rural wage growth has declined from 27% to less than 5%. The corporate wages have also exhibited single-digit growth in financial year 19 compared to double-digit growth in few years back. The exports as a percent of GDP has declined from 24% to 19% in the period of 2011 to 2018. Inflation, the inflation rate in the economy has declined from 10% in financial year 13 to 3.4% in financial year 19. Now, these all are the indicators of the slowdown. But what we need to understand is what is a slowdown and especially what is a cyclic slowdown. Because it is being said that this slowdown is cyclic slowdown. So, what is cyclic slowdown? A cyclical slowdown is a period of lean economic activity, means less economic activity that occurs at regular intervals. Such slowdowns last over the short to medium term and are based on the changes in the business cycle. Generally, interim fiscal and monetary measures, temporary recapitalization of credit market and need-based regulatory changes are required to revive the economy. Now, what is a structural slowdown? A structural slowdown, on the other hand, is a more deep-rooted phenomena. It is driven by disruptive technologies, changing demographics, and or change in consumer behavior. Fixing such problems would require the government to undertake some structural policies. The best example in this regard would be the reforms that were carried out to address the crisis in 1991. Now, is the slowdown cyclical or structural? There has been a lot of suggestion regarding the economic slowdown in India currently is experiencing. The RBI in its annual report for 2018-19 has said that the recent deacceleration de de could be in the nature of a soft patch mutating into a cyclical downsizing rather than deep structural slowdown. Although RBI acknowledged that there are still structural issues like land, labor, agricultural marketing which need to be addressed. Now, what are the causes of slowdown? Global economy with US-China trade war and Brexit, global sentiments are poor. Now, series, second is series of disruptions like demonetization, GST. They create a disruption in the economy and gives a severe blow to the consumption and export growth. Next is tight monetary and fiscal policy. 
The monetary policy was focused on inflation. Combined fiscal deficit of the center and the states was high. Then financial sector. Stress in financial sector due to rising NPA and NBFC crisis created liquidity crunch. Now, what are the steps taken by the government to revive the economy? Capital infusion in banks, seventy thousand crore in the public sector banks, as we already know. Then merger of the banks. The government merged ten banks into four. Then the rollback of surcharge on foreign portfolio investment. So the announcement on the removal of surcharge is expected to provide the market some comfort, as FPI has withdrawn close to three point four billion since July. Then fourth is uh, no angel tax. It will be withdrawn for startups and investors. Fifth is FDI easing. Government allowed 100% FDI in commercial coal mining and allowed as much in contract manufacturing through the automatic route. Now, sixth one is relief for Indian companies. Kaise relief? The the finance ministry has notified a scheme to settle indirect tax dispute in the pre-GST era named Sabka Viswas Legacy Dispute Resolution Scheme. And um, then the seventh one is relief in CSR CSR. Because the CSR violations will not be treated as criminal offence, instead they will be treated as civil violations. Then eighth is to boost real estate. The government announced thirty thousand crore liquidity support to the struggling house finance, housing finance companies. Then the ninth one is help of MSMEs. MSMEs will get their pending GST funds within next thirty days. Now, what are the steps to be taken? The short term will be on monetary policy and on fiscal policy. So on monetary policy, they need to uh, the action need to reduce the repo rate. उससे क्या होगा? What will be the benefit of it? The rupee has to allow allowed to depreciate slowly since the rising effective real effective exchange rate has hurt exports. Then on fiscal policy, the RBI stressed on continued focus on reforms in factors of production, faster implementation of capital expenditure by government public authorities. And uh, the goal of divesting government equity in public enterprises and in public sector banks will also generate resources for increasing public infrastructure investment, which should crowd in private investment. It could be partly used to recapitalize public sector banks. Long term action. In the long term, what we need to do is banking sector reform. Strengthening the banking and non-banking gives a big push for spending on the infrastructure and revive consumption and private investment. Second is prioritize growth-friendly policies. The Indian government should pursue reforms in the areas of urban governance, housing, land, credit, labor market. Third is focus on the agricultural sector. For sustainable growth, agricultural sector must grow at four percent. Then fourth is focus on industrialization. India, despite being a developing economy, had adopted a service-led growth strategy by bypassing the industrialization effort. With the share of services 54% in the economy, the phenomena hindered the generating enough jobs. So we need to focus on industrialization. Then the fifth one is foster greater federalism. Indian states should be allowed to engage both cooperatively and competitively with the central government and with each other. Now there has been slowdown in auto industry also. According to Society of Indian Automobiles Manufacturer, auto industry witnessed steep dip in the sale in the month of July. What is the reason? NBFC crisis. Number one. Then second is policy reset. What is the policy reset? That uh, there is a possibility that some customers are waiting to buy the la- latest Bharat Stage six emission standard compliant rules vehicles, because uh, the government has announced that uh, 
some policy changes like leafrogging leafrogging from bs4 to bs6 sudden diesel ban and new axle load norms and ev thrust have hurt sales the government increased the official maximum load carrying capacity of heavy vehicles to 25% with the aim of bringing down logistic cost this will adversely affect the commercial sale of vehicles then the third reason for slowdown is multiple shock like demonetization gst then shared mobility from uh, you know the tech led shared mobility firms like ola and uber have dented the demand in urban market election pause and growing organized pre owned vehicle market so in urban urban areas there is already a very high usage of vehicles and the demand is comparatively you know going down what will be the impact of slowdown on the overall economy the automobile industry supports steel chemical textiles and other sectors as well so the slowdown will impact a broader economy then there will be job losses according to the latest figures original equipment manufacturers have removed about 15000 temporary workers in the past 2 to 3 months a lack of working capital amid tepid demand has led to the closure of nearly 300 dealers across the country then third is revenue loss auto industry accounting for about 11% of the entire gst revenues of the country any slowdown would impact exchequer heavily now what are the steps to be taken the central uh, the center lift the ban on the purchase of new vehicles for replacing all old vehicles by the government departments bs4 vehicle purchase up to march 2020 will remain operational for the entire period of registration then uh, the government should allow an additional 15% of depreciation taking it to 30% on all vehicles acquired till march 2020 revision of one time registration fee to be deferred till 20 june 2020 the ministry of road transport and highways have issued a draft notification that the proposed that proposed to increase the registration charges for new internal combustion engine powered vehicles to 5000 government should promise in to introduce new scrappage policy now way forward a reduction in the gst to 18% from the current 28% will help in immediate price reduction and government should take timely measures to handle the nbfc crisis to infuse liquidity into the system now the second topic of this section is bond yield and inversion bond yield and inversion now why it is in news because there has been talks on the bond yield and bond inversion where recently in news amid global slowdown rising fears of recession in india government bond yield fell sharply in the wake of union budget now what is bond and bond yield a bond is different instrument issued by the country's government or by a company to raise funds and having a maturity period of more than 1 year every issue has a price fixed by the issuer known as face value and an annual interest known as coupon payment later when the bond is traded in the secondary market its prices fluctuate in response to changes in the interest rate in the economy the effective rate of return or the profit that the bond earns is called as bond yield and is calculated by dividing the bond's coupon rate by its face value the bond yield has an inverse relationship with the bond price government bonds like gsec in india treasury in the us and gilt in the uk come with the sovereign guarantee and are considered one of the safe, safest investment thus when an economy slows down investors prefer investment in government bonds leading to rise in their demand and prices and thus fall in their yield 
On the other hand, when an economy grows, there will be rise in inflation leading to increase in the repo rate. This may increase the rate of interest in other investment options, thus decreasing the demand for government bonds and increasing their yield. Both bond yields can therefore be a useful parameter in assessing economic health. Now, bond yield conversion. Yield conversion, uh, conversion not, bond yield inversion. Bond yield inversion happens when the yield on a longer tenure bond become less than the yield for a shorter tenure loan bond. Uh, yield inversion typically signals a recession. An inverted yield curve shows that investors expect the future growth to fall sharply. In other words, the demand for money would be much lower than what it is today and hence the yields are also lower. Yield curve. It is a graphical representation of the yields for bonds over different time horizon. The term is normally used by the government bonds for the government bonds which come with the same sovereign guarantee. If bond investors expect the economy to grow normally, yield curve is upward sloping. When the economy is expected to grow only marginally, the yield curve is flat. And the yield curve is inverted when the economy is expected to slow down. Social Stock Exchange In the budget session, Finance Minister proposed a social stock exchange under the regulatory ambit of the Securities Exchange Board of India. SEBI to support social enterprises and non-profit in raising fund. About social stock exchange, it is an electro electronic fundraising platform that allows investors to buy share in social enterprise that has been set vetted by the exchange. Social enterprises, volunteer groups, welfare organizations will be listed on the platform to raise their capital. Social enterprises are revenue generating business whose primary objective is to achieve a social objective, for example, providing healthcare or clean energy. It will act as a crowd-sourcing platform for funding of non-profit entities. Globally, at least 10 stock social stock exchanges have been set up, including Canada, UK, Singapore, Kenya, South Africa, Brazil, Portugal, Mexico, Austria, and Jamaica. Now, what is the need for social stock exchange? Because there is no such platform in India, and all these NGOs are also requiring money for investment for their work. Then what is uh, then the second need is small fraction of donors. Access to and availability of funds is one of the biggest problems for social enterprises and non-governmental organizations. Currently, there is only a small crop of individual donors who contribute money to such entities. Then social welfare objectives. The government also wants to meet various social welfare objectives related to inclusive, inclusive growth and financial inclusion. Then the fourth topic is less, uh, sorry, fourth need is less in impact investment in India. There is a need to grow the impact investment market and funds flow to these pro-social, pro-environmental business and enable access for all to impact investment in order that the capital market serve the need of the society. Then fifth one is alignment with investors. Currently, it is a challenge for many enterprises to raise funds because they need investors aligning with the thought of having such unique investments while also being focused on financial returns. Now, what is the benefit of this social stock exchange? It will involve, uh, it is an inno innovative measure that involves public participation in social causes. Second, additional capital to support entrepreneurs will be generated, which will accelerate the inclusive growth. Then third, it will bring together social enterprises and impact investors on common platform. 
Fourth, it makes the exercise much cheaper for them by standardization of the process and does away with the need to engage and negotiate directly. Fifth, for non-profit companies, A stocks uh, social stock exchange will enable fundraising as well as information on operations and financials through standardized reporting. A fundraising platform that has a regulatory oversight can improve credibility and help ameliorate the difficulties non-profits face in fundraising. But there are some challenges. What are the challenges? First is lack of clarity on trading and tax benefit. No clarity about trading, tax benefit, transferability and accountability of the third parties, availing of funds raised from this platform. No proper records are there, no financial return. Because such securities do not offer financial returns apart from the social impact return. In this case, the return on investment will be most likely to be benefit to the social welfare objective. Then other challenges limited to registered companies only and accreditation next is accreditation will be a biggest issue because uh, among investors social business and the intermediaries that act as a vital broker and valuation expert in the field getting enough genu genuine social impact companies become difficult now what is the way forward define the organizations proper policy should be there by the SEVI. proper return on investment methodology is required it, because it would seem that trading in instruments issued by social welfare organizations will require an additional mechanism that calculates the value of each such instrument on the basis of return on investment methodology that is devised. Then fourth will be education, training and awareness. Then creating social businesses. There are efforts underway to create social support businesses but we need more. Research and development will be there. This knowledge would provide the right framework within which investors can make more holistic decisions. That includes social businesses and SSEs. Regular assessment. An assessment of how effective the current provisions are and what efforts are required to enable social enterprises to fully leverage them would be useful. Then coordination between different bodies like NGOs, social enterprises and are required. The next topic is microcredit. Why it is in news? Because... Uh, Recently, some experts have suggested that existing system of microcredit have a limited impact on the long-term well-being of the recipients. Microcredit transfers to the granting of various very small loans to impoverished borrowers with the aim of enabling the borrowers to use that capital to become self-employed and strengthen their business. Loans given as microcredit are often given to the people who may lack collateral credit history. Then the core idea of microcredit is that small loan will provide access to the large economy to the people. Microcredit falls under the larger umbrella of microfinance. And in India, the microcredit model has been dominated by self-help group movement. It now has a savings account balance of 19,000 crore and credit outstanding of 75,000 crore. There are more than 5,000 channel partners. Recently, a review article published in Ideas for India a policy research portal claimed that certain flaws in how microcredit transactions occur has led to the outcomes having muted benefits in improving the lives of its beneficiaries. Now, benefits of microcredit poverty alleviation, promoting entrepreneurship, help casual labor, women empowerment, and social security. Women empowerment may declare kaise? lending to microfinance borrowers, mostly women in rural areas, has increased. 900% over the last 6 years from 2 billion to 20 billion which is a great effort.
then what are the issues of microcredit in india lack of flexibility non maintenance of credit history vulnerability vulnerability of the microfinance institutions create further debt traps when a small business fails and takes another loan to fulfill the previous one it rather exacerbate the debt now steps towards microcredit in india the self help groups bank linkage program it is an initiative by nabard to link the unorganized sector with the formal banking sector under this program the bank are allowed to open savings account for self help groups banks can provide loan to self help group against group guarantee and and the quantum of loan could be several times the deposits placed by the self help group with the banks then livelihood enterprise development program for creating sustainable livelihood among shg members was introduced on the pilot basis in select states india microfinance equity fund to support microfinance institutions and mudra which is micro units development and refinance agency limited set up by the government in 2015 with its total focus on micro enterprise it will it has to hand hold the facilitate development process of small microfinance institutions and not for profit mfis so these were the topics that to be covered in this section of the podcast now i'll see you in the next section of this podcast with other topics rest of the topics welcome to the third section of the podcast the next topic is chit funds amendment bill Union Cabinet has approved the introduction of Chit Funds Amendment Bill in 2000 uh, 2019 in Lok Sabha. More in the news, the bill makes amendments to the Chit Fund Act 1982 to facilitate orderly growth of the chit fund sector and remove bottleneck being faced by the chit fund industry, thereby enabling greater financial access to the people to other financial products. Now, what is a chit fund? A chit fund is a type of saving scheme where a specified number of subscriber contribute payments in installment. Each subscriber is entitled to a prize amount determined by the lot. The prize amount is the entire pool of contribution minus a discount. With reported 10,000 chit funds in the country handling over 30,000 crore annually, chit fund proponents maintain that these funds are important financial tool. however they can be misused by its promoters and there are several instances of people running such ponzi schemes and then absconding with investors money regulation of chit fund being part of the concurrent list of the indian constitution both the center and state can frame legislation regarding chit funds neither rbi nor sevi regulates the chit fund business under the chit funds act 1982 all chit fund companies need to be registered with respective state governments Now, what are the provisions of of this Chit Funds Amendment Bill 2019? Additional names for Chit Funds. The 1982 Act specifies various names which may be used to refer to a Chit Fund. These include Chit, Chit Fund, Kuri. The Bill additional inserts Fraternity Fund and Rotating Savings and Credit Institution to this list. Presence of subscribers through video conferencing. The act specifies that a chit will be drawn in the presence of at least two subscribers. The bill seeks to allow the subscriber to join via video conferencing. Then increase in the foreman's commission. Under this 1982 act, the foreman is responsible for managing the chit fund. It is entitled to a maximum commission of five percent of the chit amount. The bill seeks to increase the commission to seven percent. Aggregate amount of chit. 
the bill has increased the limits of maximum amount that can be collected under chit by firms association and individuals application of the act at present 1982 act does not apply to chit smaller than rupees 100 the bill seeks to remove the limit of 100 and allow state government to set the limit now the next topic is coal india the government of india is considering to break coal india into separate listed companies to improve its working but we need to know what is coal india coal india limited was formed in the year 1975 before 1975 the indian coal industry was plagued with number of issues like low productivity lack of strategic planning lack of funds low grade technology lack of regulation under government monopoly coal production by coal india etc increased steadily however top grade coal was still not mined extensively prompting us to import it from countries like australia indonesia and south africa now background the department of investment and public asset management has sent a proposal to coal india and the ministry of coal to list four of coal india's biggest production units as well as its exploration arm coal india limited is the dominant coal miner in the country it made up of 83% of the domestic production and 63% of the total coal supply the four units are mahanadi coal fields southeastern coal fields northern coal fields central coal fields account for more than 3/4 of the company's output while constituting less than half of its workforce but coal mining has been characterized by the monopoly of coal india limited lack of effective regulatory mechanism poor exploration efforts and subpar safety records around 70% of the power generation is coal based india is the third largest producer of coal in the world but also third biggest importer of coal which the government wants to change by boosting the local coal production concerns with coal india unable to meet growing demand despite abundant resources then the production is declining which is fallen by 5.1% and dispatches by 2.9% then decline in capacity utilization due transportation bottlenecks management vacancies delays in procurement and strikes in bandh then inefficient organization the coal india limited output per man shift is estimated at 1/8 of the peabody energy the world's largest private coal producer another is a, a delay in the projects the till date the coal india uh, limited has 54 coal mining projects that are facing delays due to various reasons then under utilization of funds the standing committee on coal has observed that the coal india limited has utilized only 62% of the funds falling share in capital markets coal india limited has a market cap of about 28 billion dollar which are heading for a fifth straight year of decline lack of availability of the latest technological equipment for deep depth coal mining the machinery available with coal india limited called open cast mining allows drilling mostly up to 300 meters below earth surface but about 40% of the total coal reserves are located at a deeper depth which cannot be extracted using open cast mining moreover open cast mining is more preferred because it is easier cheaper safer now what are the other challenges lack of an accurate assessment and evaluation system of coal reserve distribution in the country 
but there are some advantages of breaking up the CIEL and there are some challenges also. What are the advantages? It brings competition. It takes up the methods to foresee demand supply situation and set long term goals. It can help increase production to coal uh, of coal to 1 billion ton by 2020. The government can diverse, divest some of its shares which can bring more private participation and greater managerial expertise. Now challenges of breaking up CIL. What will be the problem? It will face protest by the labor union. There are structural differences between subsidiaries which may not be addressed by the mere change of management. Then there are some wide range of subtle cross linkages ranging from inter-subsidiary staff movement, difference in dividend payouts which will be breaking it up difficult, which will make its breaking it up difficult. But there are some recommendations of the working group on coal. The coal company should take possession of the entire area of the land required for the life of the project and uh, the special tax force to grant necessary clearance such as mining, forest, environment clearance, land acquisition, opening up the sector for more private participation especially with regard to captive mining, setting up of a regulatory authority which would have the powers to comprehensively handle coal resource development and regulation for its extraction and use. Now, what are the way forward? The way forward is a blanket approach of breaking a large corporation into parts may not be applicable in case of Coal India Limited due to various synergies and location specific cross linkages present in different production units. Rather, to improve the efficiencies and competition, there is a need to enhance private players, allow commercial mining and achieve a sustainable number of players in the private sector to optimize production. There are some related news also in this sector, which is government has allowed 100% FDI under automatic route in coal mining and associated infrastructure. Then 100% FDI automatic route is in coal and lignite mining. Then same has been allowed for sale of coal and mining, including associated processing infrastructure like coal washery, crushing, coal handling, separation. And uh, FDI has expected to improve mining life cycle. Other FDI reforms announced 100% FDI under automatic rule <coughs> has been allowed in contracts manufacturing to give a boost to domestic manufacturing. On FDI in single brand retail, the cabinet has relaxed the definition of mandatory 30% domestic resourcing norm. Now the next topic is marine fishery sector. Recently, Marine Fisheries Regulation Management is a bill is circulated in the public domain for discussion. Marine fisheries sector in India is uh, basically marine fisheries is that branch of fisheries which deals primarily with marine fishes and other sea products like oil, sardine, tuna, crab, marine algae, etc. India is the second largest fish producer in the world with a total production of 13 million metric ton. The, se uh, the sector has been showing a steady growth in the total gross value added and accounts for 5.23% share of the agricultural GDP. Indian fisheries and aquaculture is an important sector of food production providing nutritional security and it also maintains the contribution through national economic, uh, to the national economic development, tourism and creation. But there are some challenges. The issue with the deep sea fishing Basically, uh, mechanized fishing vessel owners, fish processors due to opening of Indian seas to the foreign factory fishing uh, uh, ships. These are these are being criticized. The deep sea fishing is policy has been criticized. Also, no suitable data is available about the deep sea resources. Deep sea fishing needs high capital investment, and there is also non-availability of skilled manpower. 
then unorganized market system the challenges is that the market system associated with the deep sea fishing is unorganized the existing system is uh, basically do not have any forward or backward linkages there is a big difference between fish sale price at the landing center and retail market which indicates that the middleman is benefited with the substantial share of the prizes then say some unutilized resources are there most of the resources caught in the high seas are discarded as sea except for high value resources like shrimp and shark now lack of value addition technology there is a huge gap in technological expertise and further standardization of the developed technology by research institute then lack of infrastructure facility the infrastructure facility like standard board building yards for construction of new boats and repair does not are not there then declining catches and overfishing in the coastal waters due to uh, climate change habitat degradation illegal unreported unregulated landings etc then post harvest losses are there due to discard spoilage reduced quality no social security the fishing community does not get any proper security benefits but you also you need to know what are the steps taken by the government steps taken by the government includes blue revolution which is an integrated development and management of fisheries approved by the government pro provides for a focused development then draft national policy on mariculture has been formulated to ensure sustainable farmed seafood production then government has notified national policy on marine fishing government has notified national policy on marine fishing then letter of permit system is exclusive economic zone has been adopted stopped in order to boost the livelihood of local fishermen then traditional fishers have been exempted from the fishing prohibited the use of led lights and other artificial lights and practice of bull trawling pursue seining and gill netting operations in indian economic exclusive economic zone now what are the potential of marine fisheries in india india has vast potential for fisheries considering long coastline of about 8000 km and an ex- igno- exclusive economic zone of 2 million square km apart from the inland water resources The annual fishery potential of the country's EEZ is about 5 million ton. India has large coastal wetlands with a cover of 40,000 km square. Now, Marine Fisheries Regulation and Management Bill 2019, it it is it was proposed as per its obligation under UN Clause 1982 and WTO, covering the gap between center and states. since fisheries is a state subject fishing in the internal waters and territorial sea comes within the purview of the state social security it proposes social security for fish industry workers and calls for protection of life at sea during severe weather event then fishing in exclusive economic zone the bill provides fishing by foreign fishing vessels thus nationalizing exclusive economic zone and indian fishing vessel desires of fishing in the exclusive economic zone outside the outside the territorial sea fisheries management plan it will ensure that the ec- ecological integrity of the maritime zones of india including prevention control and mitigation of any form of pollution arising through fishing and fishing related activities is maintained now what is the way forward fundings it is suggested that the refinancing from navad can be arranged then special insurance system for fishing community and cooperation for safety and security of the fishermen 
then revival of the corporate sect cooperative sector with co constant engagement of central uh, government would help in achieving the doubling of the farmers income then training proactive support possibly through the provision of objective and competent advice and training awareness it is also essential to create awareness on the edible qualities then conservation of sea resources the government should take steps to ensure conservation of threatened and endangered deep sea resources such as shrimp and lobster through legal provisions cooperative governance between center and state would uh, over different territories of the sea is key to the sustainable management of marine fisheries which should ideally go into the concurrent list now the next topic is renewable hybrid energy system india recently conducted two auction for wind solar hybrid system the renewable hybrid energy system are uh, comprised of two or more renewable energy resources combined and various types of hybrid renewable energy system include biomass wind fuel a photovoltaic cell array coupled with a wind turbine and hydro wind energy system what are the benefits these systems provide customized power solution according to diverse need of the customer they are beneficial in terms of reduced line and transformer losses hybrid energy system often yield greater economic and environmental return for example hybrid energy system run on solar energy to provide power in daytime and use wind to provide power on nighttime it is estimated that wind solar storage hybrid system could generate round the clock power with the cost with cost as well as reliability levels compared to existing coal fired power plants in the next 4 5 years they can therefore become a viable solution for meeting the future base load power requirements all at the zero carbon emission and future cost inflation proof but there are some challenges in implementing such system technical challenges high manufacturing cost power losses and storage issues the way forward is that rightful use of storage ramping source of power technical advancement and what is the conclusion this approach of using hybrid models would not only help in village electrification but it will also be more significant as its implementation is a smarter approach towards conservation of our environment ultimately making power grid smarter so that was it about this section of the podcast i'll cover rest of the topics in the last podcast here thank you for listening now our next topic is tourism industry recently the prime minister has urged the people to visit at least 15 tourist destinations within india by 2022 potential of tourism for india large number of domains and destinations in india is available like heritage natural spiritual medical tourism economic potential towards employment generation is huge contribution to india's soft power in terms of people to people contact this is is what i also agree then major issues with tourism in india infrastructural issues like suitable lodging and connectivity is not there cleanliness concerns like owing to poor maintenance and dumping of waste lack of basic amenities like good quality food drinking water toilets and safety concerns especially pertaining to women safety also there's a issue of terrorism insurgency in some of the northeastern states and jammu and kashmir environmental issues where the local environment faces degradation owing to increased tourism traffic now what are the steps taken towards it augmenting tourism infrastructure like swadesh darshan scheme 
various circuits are there in this then next is uh, prashad scheme which is uh, pilgrimage rejuvenation and spiritual augmentation drive under this 25 sites have been identified amravati ajmer varanasi etc adopt of heritage scheme whereby outsourcing of the maintenance of some of the monuments have been done by the ministry then ensuring ease of travel what have been done uh, basically augmenting tourism infrastructure ensuring ease of travel issue of e visa multilingual toll free tourism info line then promotion and publicity the paryatan parv bharat parv campaigning on the print electronic social online media then also launch incredible india 2.0 campaign during 2017-18 to cover both major and emerging markets then the next initiative taken by uh, is to promotion of service quality standards through hostel classification into various stars then international cooperation the ministry engages in various consultations and negations with organizations such as un wto economic and social commission for asia and pacific now what is the way forward developing all encompassing one stop solution including information on tourism related services through a web based application and grievance redressal mechanism the states and union territories should adopt what adventure tourism bed and breakfast homestay scheme and there is a need to change the perception of india in the mind of foreign tourist now the next topic is sugar industry in india but before that you'll have to wait for a second next is sugar industry in india union cabinet recently approved the creation of buffer stock of 4 million ton of sugar more in the news was that the buffer stock will be created for one year from 19 august to 31st july 2020 and uh, the reimbursement under the scheme would be met on quarterly basis to sugar mill the step is aimed at increasing wholesale prices of sugar and improving cash flow to sugar mills the since the 2019-20 marketing year it is likely to commence with huge carry over and opening stock building a huge sugar buffer stock with help maintain de- demand supply balance and to stabilize sugar prices the cabinet also approved a proposal on the fair and remunerative price of sugar cane payable by the sugar mills sugar industry in india is the largest producer of sugar khandsri gur equivalent followed by brazil sugar cane provides raw material for the largest agro based textile industry uh, sorry largest it is the largest agro based industry after textile then sugar industry is an instrumental in generating sizable amount in the rural sector directly and indirectly then broadly there are two distinct agro climatic regions in the sugar cane cultivation in india which is tropical and subtropical the tropical is the is the one that includes maharashtra andhra tamil nadu karnataka gujarat madhya pradesh goa pondicherry kerala and and subtropical is around 55% of the total sugar cane area which is up bihar punjab haryana also but there are some challenges faced by the sugar industry low level of productivity of the sugar cane due to inadequate irrigation facilities inefficient government policies basically um, basically uh, the government policy regarding uh, cane prices control of price of sugar cane and all these uh, are problems major problems then pricing mechanism the production of the sugar is influenced by the purchasing price of sugar cane depending upon the cost of cultivation 
then seasonal nature the sugar industry has a seasonal character uh, and the crushing season is normally varies for 4 to 7 months and the problem of by product an important problem of sugar industry is the utilization of by product especially bagges and molasses then high prices of sugar the inefficiency and uneconomic nature of the production in the sugar mills low yield and short crushing season the high price of sugarcane and heavy excise duties levied by the government these are responsible for the high cost of production of sugarcane then obsolete and old machinery majority of the machines which are currently in use are very obsolete and old in bihar and uttar pradesh and small uneconomic size of mills most of the mills are you know with a small size capacity of 1000 to 1.5 ton 1.5 ton per day sorry 1500 tons per day this makes large scale production uneconomic then regional imbalances in distribution is there over half of the sugar mills are located in maharashtra uttar pradesh and about 60% of the production comes from these two states while on the other hand there are several states like northeast jammu kashmir odisha where there is no appreciable growth of this industry then uncompetitive in the global markets because Indian sugar is uncompetitive in the global market as there is a fixed minimum support for the sugar cane with no impact arising from the market forces. But uh, we, before this, we need to find out what the sugar, what is the sugar cane pricing mechanism is in India. In India, the pricing of sugar cane is controlled by whom? Sugar Cane Control Order, nineteen sixty six, issued under Essential Commodities Act of nineteen fifty five. There are mainly two prices for sugar cane: fair and remunerative price. It is the cane price announced by the central government on the basis of uh, CACP under consulting state government, associated and associations of sugar cane industry, and the other price is state advised prices, citing difference in the cost, production, productivity levels, and also as a result of pressure from the farmer groups, some states declare state advised prices usually higher than. FRP, which is fair and remunerative price. This dual sugar cane pricing distorts sugar cane and sugar economy, leads to cane price error. High state advised prices without any linkage with the output price become unviable. Industry association recommends to remove the system of SAP in cases state announced SAP. Such price differential should be borne by the state government. Now, what are the factors for the fixation of fair and remunerative price? cost of production of sugarcane intercrop price parity reasonable margins for the growers of the sugarcane on account of risk and profit recovery of sugar from sugarcane price at which sugar is sold by sugar producers their realization made from sale of byproducts or their imputed value then recovery of sugar from sugarcane price at which the sugar is sold by the sugar sugar producers availability of sugar in to the consumers at a fair price now what are the shifting trend of sugar industry to peninsular india apart from uttar pradesh in recent year many peninsular states like maharashtra karnataka tamil nadu have emerged as a major producer of sugar theek hai so which has also caused sugar mill industry to shift to peninsular india the reason for this shift is longer crushing period adequate rainfall high recovery rate high sucrose content then the northern india then easier transportation access due to port areas other than this some steps has been taken by the government like ethanol blended program it seeks to achieve blending of ethanol with motor spirit with a 
view of reducing pollution, conserve foreign exchange and increase value addition. Central government has scaled up blending targets from 5% to 10% under ethanol blending program. Then national policy on biofuels. Under this policy, sugarcane juice has been allowed for production of ethanol. Government fixed remunerative price of ethanol produced from C heavy molasses and B heavy molasses sugarcane juice separately for supply under ethanol blending program during ensuring ethanol season. Scheme for extending finance assistance to sugar undertakings. It envisages interest-free loans by bank as additional working capital to sugar mills for clearance of cane price arrears of previous sugar season and timely settlement of cane price of current sugar season to sugarcane farmers. Now, what is the way forward? The simple things that the government need to do is miniaturization of sugarcane industries. This will help group of small farmers to set up small-scale sugar industry themselves. Then improve cane pricing. The ideal way to manage uh, sugar surplus is to link the sugarcane price to output price. Then power generation using cogeneration technology is another option that uh, through which the companies can generate revenue by selling extra electricity. Then encourage public to use more jaggery and mechanization of jaggery plants. License to farmers to produce alcohol from molasses. Encourage all sugar industries to have cogeneration plant. Then recommendation. Rangarajan Committee on the Regulation of Sugar Sector in India. The Rangarajan Committee recommended that it suggests that sugar pricing should be based on a revenue sharing formula of 75% of sugar prices or 70% of the price of sugar and major products. States should not declare SAP. All existing quantitative restrictions on trade in sugar should be removed and converted into tariff, removing the regulation on release of non-Levi sugar. States should encourage development of market-based long-term contractual arrangements. The prices of the byproduct should be market-determined and not earmarked and use allocations. The next topic is Consumer Protection Act. President gave assent to Consumer Protection Act 2019. The new act which will replace the Consumer Protection Act is not an amendment to the 1986 law, but a new Consumer Protection Law only. Okay. It aims to address the consumer vulnerabilities to new forms of unfair trade and unethical business practices in the fast-changing new age economy. The key feature of the act is that a consumer is defined as a person who buys any good or avails a service for consideration. It does not include a person who obtains a good for resale or a good or service for commercial purpose. The act defines consumer rights like protected against marketing of goods which are hazardous, to be informed about quality, quantity, potency, purity, standard and price of goods, to be assured of access to a variety of goods. It includes the right to be heard and to be assured, then the right to consumer awareness. Central Consumer Protection Authority will be set up to promote, protect, enforce consumer rights. It can issue safety notices for goods and services. The CCPA will have an investigation wing headed by Director General. Then consumer dispute redressal commissions will be set up at a district, state and national levels. Consumer protection council will be established at the district, state and national levels. Then uh, product liability means the liability of the product manufacturer, service provider or the seller. And uh, a claim for compensation may be made for any harm caused including property damage, personal injury, illness or death, mental agony or emotional harm accompanying these conditions.
Now there is some comparison between the 1986 Act and 2019 Act. The ambit of the law: all goods and services for the consideration, while free and personal services are excluded, in 1986 Act. And in 2019, uh, all goods and services, including telecom, housing construction, and all mode of transactions, are also included. Free and personal services are excluded. Now, unfair trade practices. When we see the unfair trade practices, the 1986 Act used to say it includes six types of practices like false representation, misleading advertisement. But the new law says. Three types of practices are unfair trade practices, which is failure to issue bill or receipt, refusal to accept a good return within 30 days, and disclosure of personal information given the confidence unless required by law. Contest lotteries may be notified as not falling under the ambit of unfair trade practices. Fair product liability. Product liability. There is no provision in 86 Act, and. Uh, in the new act the claim for product liability can be made with manufacturer then the jurisdiction will be un, uh, under 1986 the district up to 20 lakh state between 20 lakh to 1 crore and national above 1 crore but here in the 2019 act the district will have a jurisdiction under 1 crore state 1 to 10 crore and national above 10 crore consumer courts under 1986 complaints were filed in the consumer court where the sellers defendant office is located but now the complaints can be filed in the consumer court where consumer resides or work now e-commerce in 1986 there was no provision of e-commerce mediation sales there was no legal provision but e-commerce in 2019 act is there defines direct selling e-commerce and electronic service provider and uh, also for mediation sales the 2019 act says that court can refer settlement through mediation now what is the conclusion the act is a much needed step to overhaul the archaic consumer protection law that was increasingly becoming redundant in protecting the interest of indian consumers in this age of digitization the act addresses consumer concerns arising from technological technological advancements in the marketplace removes logistical hurdles for the consumers while initiating action and broadens the scope of grounds for which action can be initiated so that was it about the august issue of uh, economy vision is magazine keep listening and keep revising